And so we are in Colossians chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 11 to verse 12 this morning. Now, there is a story in the Bible about the Lord Jesus and his 12 disciples. Jesus is teaching uh, to a large crowd in a barren land with patches of grass. I think it's somewhere outside the village of Bethsaida. Now, everywhere we look, there are people. It is chock-a-block. People have come from all the surrounding towns to hear Jesus teach. And they've been with Jesus all day, right? And now it's getting dark, right? And so as it gets dark, it's been a long day, the disciples are getting restless, right? They're tired, and their stomachs are rumbling. So they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, time to stop teaching now. Tell the people to go away and look for food for themselves. We can't feed them here. It's, we have nothing on us. Now, it's a common sense suggestion, right? We have no food, no cash, so everyone needs to do what everybody does. They need to look out for themselves. It's nothing ash, it's just human wisdom. It's a reality of life. Let them go. Let them go out and look out for themselves. But Jesus is having none of it, right? And you may remember what happens next. He tells the 12 disciples to sit everyone in groups. That's what he says. And now the disciples, when they're taught this, they're dumbfounded, right? They're like, Jesus, are you serious now? Really? Even if we can find a place selling fish and chips, where are we going to get the money to buy for everyone? Where? Now, the disciples are thinking about life in purely human terms. For them, eating can only happen if there is money, right? They cannot see any other way. They're, they're applying worldly, you know, human wisdom, common wisdom, common sense to the situation. What they're missing is that they cannot see that Jesus, who they are talking to, is God. They cannot see that God is standing right in front of them. And all they have to do is to pray to him, we might say. All they have to do is to ask Jesus to provide food for the masses. Yes, it's never been done before, but Jesus has all the power to do it. In fact, it has been done before because in the Old Testament, God did just that. He provided food by, from manna from heaven. So they have actually a reason to even think about that, that it could happen just now. But they can't see it. And anyway, to cut the long story short, Jesus does the miracle anyway, right? He feeds the crowd with two fish and five loaves. And everybody go home full and shaking their heads. And when I think about this story, I imagine in my head they must be like, what just happened? What was that? God fed us. Isn't it just like how he did in the wilderness? Could it be? Really? God here in Bethsaida? Nah, it can't happen. They're shaking their heads and they're just dumbfounded. You can read about it in Mark chapter 6, verse 35 to 44. Now, when I think about that story, it reminds me that we find it easier to look to ourselves than look to Christ, our God, to satisfy us. No matter how long we've been with Jesus, the disciples probably at this time had been with Jesus for at least two years. They had seen many miracles, but they still struggled to take their eyes away from themselves and look to Jesus to satisfy them. And this is a challenge that every follower of Christ faces. They had seen many miracles. 
They knew that no one else apart from Christ can truly love them and care for them. But when they came to this simple issue of how to feed their stomachs, right, they decided to rely on human wisdom instead of looking to Christ. And as I said, this is a sin of followers of Christ are prone to commit. You are prone to commit this sin. Yes, you know Christ our God is the only one who can satisfy your deepest needs. But if you're honest with yourself, you often forget this truth. You are like the 12 disciples in the story. You are prone to depend on yourself, on your human-centered thinking, than to look to Christ to satisfy you. And the Bible says living like that is a sin against God. And we know it is a sin because Paul warns us against it in the passage we looked at last week. Do you remember what we looked at last week, last Sunday morning? Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. It's in front of you. Let me just read it for you. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We said philosophy is man-centered thinking. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The church at Colossae, this young church, were being tempted by false teachers to look to other things in the world to make them complete or satisfied in their life. And so Paul says in verse 8 plainly, don't do that. Don't let anyone lead you astray like that. Don't let anyone make you think that you can improve on Jesus. You can't. Reject worldly man-centered thought. Man-centered thinking will enslave you, Paul says. It will deceive you. It will spiritually oppress you. You must resist it. Because all that you have, all that you need in your life is in Christ. Christ has made you complete. The Jesus you worship is God. And Paul underlines that point, doesn't it? In verse 9 to verse 10, which we looked at last Sunday evening. For in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God in the flesh. And you, believers, have been filled in him. You've been made complete in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is saying there, if you trust in Christ, you have everything you need. Because you share life with God in Christ. But how is it that we share life with God? How has that happened? How is it possible that me, a mere human being, Chola here in Bethlehem, can say I share life with God in Christ? How is that possible? What is the basis of our union with Christ? Well, the answer to that is given to us in verse 11 to verse 14. I'll just read those verses for you. And in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just to summarize it for you simply, Paul is saying that in those, four, in those verses, those, five, those four verses there, 
He's saying this. He's saying, we are complete in Christ because God has made us his new people in Christ by enabling us to share in the death and resurrection of Christ. When Christ died, we died with him mysteriously. When he rose, we rose with him mysteriously. And those two things happened by faith. The miracle of the gospel isn't that Christ died for our sins. It is that we were with him when he died. That's the miracle of the gospel. The story of Christ is our story. We are united with Christ. And that's the truth I want us to look at. We are united with Christ. And I want to look at it over two messages. Right? Um, because we are united with Christ in his death. And we are united with Christ in his resurrection. So we need to look at these two things separately. I was going to do it together. But as I thought about it, I thought, mm, this is too much here. Let's just do this in two messages. Today we'll look at our union with Christ in death in verse 11 to verse 12. Next week, we'll look at, next, week morning, next Sunday morning, we'll look at our resurrection union with Christ. Our union with Christ in his resurrection. So look with me again at verse 11 to verse 12. In him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. I think we can summarize what Paul is teaching in verse 11 to verse 12 as simply this. We are the new people of God in Christ because we share in the death of Christ by faith. That's what he's teaching. We are the new people of God in Christ because we share in the death of Christ. How do we share in it? By faith. Trusting in Christ unites us, having faith in Christ unites us with Christ in his death. And it is through this death union with Christ that God makes us his new people in Christ. And it is there in verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made with our hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, I know when you look at that verse, it's a bit confusing. What's going on there? Well, first of all, the putting off the body of flesh is simply another way of describing death. How do I know that? Because we looked at something similar in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. Do you remember? Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 22, describing the death of Christ, it says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his what? Body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Paul reminded us there that Christ gave us peace with God by dying in his body of flesh. When Christ died, he physically put off his human body. The human spirit of Christ, we might say, left his body. That is what death is, isn't it? It is severance. When we die, our human spirit leaves the body. And if we're believers, the Spirit goes to be with God in heaven. If we are not Christians, our spirit goes before God and is sent to hell forever. That's 
the putting off of the body. Severance. In Colossians 2, verse 11, which you just read, Paul is saying, All followers of Christ have also put off the body like Christ. Right? We have died. Somehow, as you sit here this morning, your funeral has already taken place. Yes, you are still alive, but somehow you are a witness to your funeral. You know about it, and you even talk about it to other people. What a strange thing, isn't it? It's a strange concept. I know a guy down the road who's already arranged his funeral. And he's happy to talk about it, and he believes by himself, and he's happy to talk about it. It's a strange thing when I talk to him, I say, wow, you've already arranged your funeral, and you are only in your early 70s, or is it just 70 now? He's very healthy, right? But it shouldn't be strange, because that's what has already happened to us. As a Christian, you have already been a witness to your funeral. When did your funeral take place? Paul says, at the cross. When Christ died, you participated in his death. You were crucified with him. Or as Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, doesn't he? You are crucified with Christ. Verse 11 makes that point as well. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This phrase, the circumcision of Christ, is key here because it literally means the putting off of the body of flesh of Christ. Because that's what circumcision is, physical circumcision. Circumcision is a violent cutting off of the flesh. And Paul here is applying that violent image of the physical circumcision of Christ to the violent death of Christ. Now we might ask ourselves, why is he doing that? Why has he borrowed this New Old Testament image of violent circumcision to apply to the violent death of Christ on the cross? Well, because he wants us to understand that when Christ died physically, we died with Christ as our spiritual circumcision. Okay? The physical circumcision of Christ on the cross is violent death applies to us our spiritual circumcision in Christ. In the Old Testament, circumcision was physical, wasn't it? It was performed by parents as a sign that the male Jewish child was now part of the people of God, Israel. You remember God's command to Abraham, I think it's in Genesis 17, to do just that. The key point here, though, that even though it was given by God, it was really an act of human effort. It required the parents to do the job for God. It was done by human hands. But Paul is saying here, God has now undertaken a new spiritual circumcision on true followers of Christ that does not involve any human effort whatsoever. And God did this when he offered his son Christ to die on the cross for us 
and united all future true followers of Christ with Christ so that through the death of Christ, we might die to ourselves. Or rather, we might just die with Christ, right? When Christ put off the body of flesh, we also died with Christ. That's the point. We mysteriously participated in the death of Christ, Messiah Jesus, on the cross. We underwent a spiritual circumcision. The death of Christ, we might say, is our vicarious circumcision. The death of the Messiah is a new spiritual circumcision that made us into a new people of God. We, are, we belong to Christ because we share in the death of Christ. We do not just belong to Christ because Christ died for us. It is that we died with him. We must pause, isn't it? And think about that. Because there's another important theological point here which I just want to draw to your attention. And it's so important. In fact, it's so important to us Baptists. It is why we are not Presbyterians. Paul is saying the Old Testament circumcision pointed to the death of Christ on the cross. Not to baptism. It's so important you understand that. There are many who claim circumcision pointed to baptism. But Paul says, no. Those who claim it is valid to baptize infants because it's like, it is just like circumcision are wrong. Because circumcision always pointed to the cross, says Paul. In him, you are also circumcised a circumcision made with our hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision in the Old Testament pointed us to this circumcision performed by God to us in Christ. Namely, the putting off of the body in death. Not for Christ's benefit, but for us. Now, the question is, how is it possible that you and I, if we trust in Jesus, who have never tested death, have already died with Christ, even before we were born, or we became followers of Christ? How is that possible? Well, Paul answers that in verse 12, doesn't he? Verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, we'll come back to the issue of the resurrection next Sunday. Today, I just want us to see that Paul believes that what happened to us was real, right? He believed it was a real thing. Paul is saying to the Colossians, you really died with the Messiah. And you are really buried with the Messiah in that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea for three days. Yes, it is mysterious, but it has already happened to you. And in case you are doubting it happens, just remember that this is the reason you were baptized, says Paul. When you were baptized, you were reenacting what had already happened to you on the cross. Your baptism was a picture of your death with Christ. And, and, and when you were baptized, you pledged your faith in God. God used your faith in him to unite you with Christ. By faith in Christ, his death became your death. 
in which you are also raised with him, he says in verse 12, in the power, through faith in the powerful working of God. Paul is saying you share in the death of Christ, not because of your baptism, but because you believe God raised Christ from the dead. And you believed in this Christ. Your baptism, if you are baptized, your baptism was an arrow that pointed you to what had already happened inside of you. Because you trust in Jesus Christ. And so just to summarize then. It's a lot there to take in, isn't it? But just to summarize it for you. The key point Paul is making is that all true followers of Christ have already participated in the death of Christ by our faith in God. And I underline that because it's a truth, frankly, I don't hear often myself. And I suspect many of us haven't heard that. We hear a lot about Christ dying for us. But, and then briefly, when somebody's being baptized, we hear that actually we died with Christ. And Paul here is saying our union with Christ is real. And we appropriate it by faith. We did die with Christ. And we need to remember that. The main reason why God has made us share in the death of Christ is why? It is so that he would perform a spiritual circumcision on us. That we would become the new people of God. This is why the church is the new people of God. The new Israel of God. Why? Because God has performed a spiritual circumcision on us. The big benefit of us dying with Christ. What is that? Is that our death union with Christ. Gives us this brand new status. As a new people of God in Christ. And so in short, or true followers of Christ, if you're truly born again, you are complete in Christ because God has made you his, part of his new people. By faith, you participated in the death of Christ. And so the question is, what are we then meant to do with this truth? Can I just give you three things which are on your outline of what you're meant to do with this wonderful truth that you participated in the death of Christ? First, give God your thanks. We always start there, don't we? Give God your thanks for making you part of his new people in Christ, if you're truly born again, through our death union with Christ. Give God your thanks. You are part of the new people of God because our heavenly Father has given this gift of belonging to him as a free gift to you. Our God is a, father, is a God who gives, gives, and gives. It is because he is a good God who gives good gifts to his children that we are his children. It is God who through Christ gave us a spiritual circumcision. He made us share in the death of Christ. Not because of anything we have done, but out of the boundless riches of his grace. Today is Father's Day, isn't it? It's Father's Day. And people, as I said earlier, are expressing thanks to human fathers for what they have done. That's a wonderful thing. But even more wonderful, it is that God is our Father. And we need to thank Him for being our Father. 
Give God the Father your thanks today for sending his only beloved son to not only be crushed for your sins on the cross, but so that in you being united in him by faith, you may taste death as it were with him. To die with him. And as we shall see next week, being risen with him. And give God the Son thanks, isn't it? Who willingly allowed himself to be stripped naked, to have his sinless body scourged by lawless men. For every scourge Christ endured against his body, give him thanks for that. Give him thanks for every drop of blood that he poured out for you. Give him thanks for every pain he every cry of pain he utters. Give him thanks for every spit he endured in his face. Give him thanks for, 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 for all the shame he endured while bleeding there on that cross. From, give him thanks for all the mockings he endured from passers-by. And above all, give him thanks for those three hours of darkness he endured on the cross for you. When his father, his heavenly father, turned his face away from him. When God poured his very wrath on judgment, very wrath and judgment on Christ for your sins. When God treated his son worse than he treats you. Give God the son your thanks. Thank him for willingly bleeding and dying on the cross so that you can share in his death. So that you can have this spiritual circumcision become part of his people. And give God the Holy Spirit thanks, isn't it? Because it is him who has breathed new life in us and applies our death union with Christ so that through the gift of faith we might share in the death of Christ. And it is him who lives in us, isn't it? It is him who is now the seal of our sonship. Oh, beloved, give God your thanks. Sometimes we forget just how wonderful our triune God is. We hear this truth so many times and it sometimes bores us to death. It shouldn't. What a God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a joy to be called his new people in Christ. Let us worship him every day. Give God your thanks. The second thing you should do is that let this truth that we are the new people of God by our death union with Christ encourage you to keep looking to Christ to satisfy you and not yourself or the world. The world is constantly tempting us to depend on ourselves rather than look to Christ to satisfy us. It says to us, Christ is not enough for all your situations in life. You need more than Jesus, it says. Now, you know, look, if you're genuinely born again, you don't need me to preach about this. If you're genuinely born again, you know your God is real. You know that. 
You know it deep within. You know how God has been faithful to you. You know the assurance of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You don't need to hear it from here because the true thing is that if you're a true believer, you know that you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And you have the assurance that you belong to Him. You know that our Father is faithful, that He has never failed you. You know all of that. You know all of that. And yet, like the disciples, and like the Colossians, you often find yourself looking to yourself to satisfy you, rather than looking to Christ alone to satisfy you. This is life. You sometimes doubt whether your faith in Christ is enough to respond to your current agent prayers and meet your growing needs in life. You sometimes look at how little resources you have. You see the little strength you have and this causes you to worry and panic about life. Oh, beloved, Christ does not want us to doubt him. He does not want you to look to yourself to satisfy you. He didn't bleed and die on the cross so that you can live for yourself. No, he's saying to you in this passage, trust my death union with you. I have made you my child. You are really complete in me because my death is your death. You have now been included into my new people. You are all mine. There is no need for you to look to the world to satisfy you because I have guaranteed your care by sharing my death with you. Keep looking to me. He's saying to you, my child, look, there's nothing more that the world can offer you that I cannot give you. You are well provided for in me. So keep your focus on me. Don't take your eyes off me. Don't look to other things. Don't let the world take you captive. Doing that robs you of peace and joy in me. Don't chase after things you already have. It's foolish. Because grace, we have a man's style we live in. Now what would be? Wouldn't it be foolish for me if you hear that one day I'm out trying to look for, to rent a house where it's being constructed? You just shake your head. What's happening? The church has given you a house to live in. But we do that, don't we? Why are we looking after things which God has already richly provided for us in Christ? It's foolish. Beloved, I encourage you this morning to hear the voice of our Messiah in this passage. Keep your focus on this truth. Christ has forever changed your status before God. If you're trusting Christ, you're not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. And Paul says here, you are now part of the new people of God in Jesus. So do not look to the world, look to Christ to satisfy you. And this morning, I just want to ask you plainly, are you doing that? Are you looking to Christ to satisfy? Ask yourself this question. Where am I currently looking to satisfy me rather than looking to Christ who has united me with himself in his death? Is it a relationship or a friendship that I know is leading me in the wrong path, but I'm holding on to it because I want it to satisfy me more than Christ? Ask yourself that. Is it some activity or a hobby that I like doing? I know that I've become addicted to it and it is messing up my life, but I'm holding on to it more than Christ. 
Is it my relentless career pursuit? Has my job become my savior? Am I in danger of putting my desire, my desire for career ahead of true focus on Christ? Living as Christ would have me. Is it my family? On Father's Day, we must ask ourselves this question. Am I looking to my children, my grandchildren, to satisfy me? Are they the center of my gravity? Am I looking to those things to give me the sense of completeness in life rather than looking to Christ? And what a warning to fathers. I think I must add this because it's not, it doesn't quite fit in what I want to talk about, but I, this is why I feel like I'm saying it. Beloved, as, as God blesses with your children, don't worship them. Don't worship them. It's one of the saddest things I've seen as a pastor. People pray for kids, God provides. And what do they do? They worship their children. It's tragic. God hates that. We know he hates that because that's why he asked Abraham to go through that painful test. So that Abraham could recognize that if he's going to be a, a good father, he has to be willing to give up Isaac to God. We might preach on that. Who knows? At uh, Thanksgiving next Sunday. No promises, but we might. My point is, examine yourself, beloved. What are you looking to to satisfy yourself? Rather than looking to Christ. And ask other people in the church to help you think about these issues. Let us grow together in looking to Christ alone to satisfy us. The final truth, and I'll be quick on this truth, that the final application. The third thing, the first thing is thank God for making you part of his new people. Second thing, keep looking to Christ alone to satisfy you. And the final thing there on the outline, invite people to become part of the new people of God. Let this truth fuel your passion to share the good news of Jesus with others. Everyone you know who is not a true follower of Christ is spiritually uncircumcised. They are not yet part of the new people of God. They do not yet know Christ. They are not one of God's precious children. Such a person is a child of Satan. They are under the terrible wrath and judgment of God. And it is a very serious issue. To be spiritually uncircumcised is to be in a state of spiritual defilement. In the Old Testament, physical uncircumcision was a polluted state. It was frowned upon. The uncircumcised Philistine was not a person to be praised. For David, he was a person to be killed for defying the armies of the living God. Because he polluted such a person who was uncircumcised, polluted the company of the circumcised. In the same way, if a person has not been spiritually circumcised, they are in a state of spiritual uncleanness. Their life is a heavy stench before God. And this is a situation for every single person you know in your life, and you meet every day, who has not truly repented of their sin and trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. 
It is true of anyone here this morning who is not a true Christian. It is true of all your family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors. You meet every day who have not surrendered their life to Jesus. They are spiritually polluted. Fathers, it is true of your children who haven't come to know Jesus. They are in a spiritual defilement before God. Now my question to you this morning is very simple. How do you as a follower of Christ feel about that? How do you feel about that? Do you care about that? If you saw someone living in a filthy place, would you not be moved to help them in some way? When we see a homeless man lying on the street, does it not fill our hearts with compassion to see somebody living so filthily cut off from society? Our dear sister this week was so moved by seeing such a person that she changed our afternoon to try and do something about it. Seeing physical filth in the state of defilement before God should cause us to do something about it. Now, we do that for physical defilement, isn't it? We are moved by that. What more than the spiritual defilement before God? What more knowing that people are filthy before God? If we have any love of Christ in our heart, it should move us to weep at the state of people around us. It should move us to weep at the state of this nation because this nation is just like a garbage dump, a defilement before God. And it should fill us with passion to share Christ with the lost. Don't we love them enough to want to tell them about Christ? Have we become so desensitized to the stench of their defilement before God? Could it be that the reason you lack concern yourself for the filth is that you also live in the same filthy state? It's a serious question, isn't it? If you are used to a clean environment and you all of a sudden find yourself in a very unclean environment, you notice concerns you. So your lack of concern for the lost, could it be that you yourself are living in a state of spiritual defilement before God? Examine your heart. Don't lean on your reputation. Ask yourself plainly, honestly, because your eternity depends on it. Ask yourself, am I truly clean before God? Have I truly been spiritually circumcised? And if I have, why then do I not care about the spiritually uncircumcised around me? Set yourself. It's a serious issue. Now I know many of us, well not many of us, I hope, but I know some of us here are not yet trusting in Christ. Why not, dear friend? Why would you remain, choose to remain spiritually uncircumcised? You say, I'm young, that's why. It's no excuse. I know the Lord saved me at the age of 13. God can save anyone. So the question for you, young and old, is why are you choosing to remain spiritually defiled before God? Why do you want to stand with Satan in spiritual defilement? How long will you keep rejecting Christ, who is offering you a place among his people? Come to Christ today. Admit your sin. Cry out to Christ like the leper. Make me clean. Confess your sin, beloved. There's no one good, not even one. 
Every human being is born in a state of defilement. So cry out to him. Let Christ make you clean today. And he will by faith. He will forgive your sin if you cry out to him. You will be united with Christ in death. You will become part of his people. He will spiritually circumcise you. He will fill you with his spirit. He will give you true satisfaction in Christ. He will give you himself to love and care for you. You will no longer be biased by yourself and then unclean, living a life of emptiness. You will find completeness in Christ today if you turn to him. You will experience your death union with Christ. And you live in the sense, with the sense that no, the world no longer defines me. It's Christ who defines me. And if you truly do that, be baptized, friends. Why? Because the verse tells you that. It's a sign. Having been buried with him in baptism. Take forward baptism. The reason some of you are not baptized is because you're still in the state of defilement. But when you're truly born again, you want to run to the baptism book. When you're truly converted, the church will be like, slow down. Let's just check. You're ready. You're not running towards that because you are unclean. And so repent of sin. Be baptized to show that you're truly being regenerated. Go to Christ. Well, may the Lord help all of us to be truly united with Christ. Amen.